Well, hello, and welcome back to another episode of Bite-Sized Virtue. This is episode 5, Holy Week. So that's the, uh, in the Christian tradition, that's the week between Palm Sunday and Easter. It is uh, traditionally observed in a very solemn fashion, but I don't imagine that the discussion tonight will be entirely in line with that. We will actually be wrapping up, so this will be the last episode featuring my friend Paul and our ongoing discussion about uh, games and technology and society. And this will actually also be uh, the only episode posted this week. Uh, um, there won't be a spam, 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 humbug regular episode this week, and actually probably not next week either. Uh, normally, I mean, we would record on Friday night, and that would be posted the week following. But as it is Good Friday, I'm a little bit disinclined, personally, to have a recording session this week. So, or as it will be Good Friday, rather, it's not quite that point yet. Fun fact, um, Good Friday, so the Friday of this week, is actually the only day, at least in the Western tradition of the Catholic Church, where uh, there isn't a Mass. And in fact, not just that, but priests are not allowed, apparently, to perform the Mass. It's, uh, I mean, it's part of the observance. You know, I mean, we're reflecting, obviously, on the death of Christ, but, you know, there's a fun fact. If there is... Uh, one day in which not only is there not a full Catholic service, but which, in fact, Catholic priests are not allowed to perform a full Catholic service, it is this Friday. Um, so there won't be a spam, spam, spam humbug episode this week or probably next week. But on the other hand, next week, we will be continuing Bite-Sized Virtue um, and getting into the discussion that I had with Clortos Dragon about the principle of love and the virtue of compassion. So, look forward to that. But for now, back to the discussion with Paul. The effects of pornography on relationships and males and I'm not, whatever, you know, the, the whole issue of pornography in a society, will this change that as well? And because, like, I, I've, you know, um, from my understanding of the literature, or whatever, is that pornography basically has a very negative effect on um, uh, relationship formation and, you know, sexual. It's got a whole sexual. grab bag of psychological effects. Yeah. Like it's a real crapshoot. Yeah. So, you know, I'm not going to get too pushed onto that subject, but um, it, it, it it's. And it's the same with violence because I, I work in a, a field, uh, you know, I work in security, right? I've been um, the subject of violence. I've seen violence happen, quite, you know, quite severe violence. And um, it has a, effects on you and we're not really willing to deal with them very effectively, I don't think. No, not um, necessarily. And, At least and not in North America. Yeah, I mean, like, and and, and this is this is like a huge thing for me. Well, like, I I watch like a lot of like YouTube videos of fights and you know um, different things, whatever. To to both like um, understand what happens in street fights, kind of thing, for my own personal like protection and stuff like that, and you know whatever. And I've kind of come to the conclusion that. Um, Violence need like when we say violence is a last resort. Um, and people, you know, violence doesn't solve anything. Well, 
that's not actually true. Violence solves a lot of things. But the the issue for me is that, um, and this is I think that a lot of people are unwilling to admit or whatever, not not really think about is that when you use violence, even if say I'm just going to slap you in the face or whatever, um, that's not all right. Even if it's like even if like issues like like I've seen like slap cams and like. People go to McDonald's and be like, slap him, slap the person, whatever, like hard across the face, stuff like that, which is criminal assault. But, um, and this is where the, a lot of people don't understand is that once you engage in violence, you lose control of the situation and you lose control of how the other person responds. So, this is why, like, I'm very hesitant to necessarily use force other than my voice in a lot of situations because um and i've kind of had to mentally kind of go through this with my own mind is that if violence is going to happen the intent should be sending the other person to the hospital at the minimum if not killing them and and the, the, like the, the, like this is the, some people do have that mentality is for whatever reason if they want to engage in violence they will knock you out and kick you a dozen times just and they think they're going easy on you and yeah. you don't know that some somebody like who you know I'm a big guy um, I had a situation uh, this weekend. At a, at a at a event I was at, where the guy I'm six foot four, the guy was legitimately seven feet tall, <laughs> like like I came up to his shoulders, and so I'm like, this is how my parents feel with me, but like, and it was a matter of we had to deny him entry into a VIP area because the person who had purchased the VIP area didn't want him in. Right. Well, and I don't know what, what the reasons were or whatever. Like, there's some kind of history there or whatever. So, at some point, it doesn't really even matter. It's just, yeah. So, it's just, it's one of those things where I was really kind of wary. And he'd try and talk to me, like, hey, man, like, I'm sorry. Like, I can't do that. I can't help you out with that. Um, you know, you can't come in or whatever. Like, you, at least you can't come in here. You can go to the main entrance or whatever of the VIP section and talk to him. But it's like, you know, and I'm, I'm kind of standing in front of him and he's, towering over me and some of that but i was you know a little bit nervous because if this is like a, a situation where he tries to force his way in or you know go through me or whatever like i can't you know i can't pussyfoot around with them like you basically like I, I would be like um to be able to control the situation and to protect myself is that you are doing like you are like going for a groin shot and you're going like you know you're gonna kick you're gonna kick his knee, and you you know whatever damage that might happen, whatever like you're not you're not you're not gonna be, um, you're not gonna be I I wasn't like I'm gonna I'm gonna try my you know I'm gonna go full out. Yeah, you don't have a luxury beginning. of restraint. Yeah, because 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 you know, um, and this is this is the issue with um I think a lot of people who. And you know, if I can use this example, is that there's a lot of there's a lot of videos on YouTube 
that show like um girls hitting guys kind of thing and then the guys turn around and just knocking the snot out of them and stuff like that um it, sometimes it's it's like yeah like they deserve a kind of thing but and the, from the girls need to recognize that um it's the same i think the same um moral responsibility for them is that if they use if they engage in violence against a man um particularly nowadays there's a good chance that the guy's just going to turn around and just knock her out um yeah that whole you don't hit girls thing has kind of fallen by the wayside some yeah and i don't like i'm i'm of the opinion that i would probably be a lot more generous with girls um but they're also like the the amount of force you have to use against girls excluding people like ronda rousey who would kick my ass anyways i'm just like okay fine. i'm not gonna i'm not gonna i'm not even gonna i'm like i'm the uh, hands up like <coughs> but um it's the engagement the engaging of casual engaging of violence that um really disturbs me and our culture and in some ways that this is also reflected in in uh, AAA video games because I'm thinking like very, very I don't think there's one AAA video game that doesn't have significant amount of violence I'm I'm thinking of right now like we have the you know the more easily targeted ones like GTA um, even uh, even issues like um, Call of Duty and stuff like that um, I think that there's an there's an uh, there's a fascin- human fascination with violence, and in some ways, this is like almost an American fascination with violence and guns that um, really leads to the dehumanization um, of people. And you see this in, in the, the use of American military intervention abroad. Um, you know, as you mentioned, Trump's. Uh, issues with um, illegal immigration and how to enforce that or how you're going to enforce it. You're going to enforce like a lot of your things you want. It's going to be through a lot of violence. Um, the, the use of drones um, and like just even the common discourse among Americans in response to um, issues like uh, Islamic supremacism, ISIS, you know, Islamism, uh, however you want to term it, um, that, you know, very well, and I think there's a decent enough argument that it could exacerbate a lot of these problems and then um, destabilize big regions of the Middle East um, for really not great reasons. It's sort of like, and this is, I still kind of have this question. Um, I haven't really researched it like too, too heavily, but we, we had this media narrative back in 2014 that with Syria and that um, Assad was the bad guy. And so we have to intervene. We have to arm the rebels and stuff like that. Blah, blah, blah. Well, I mean, you know, I'm a little bit of an old school Westphalian, um, Westphalian nation state person. 
So I like the nation state in a lot of ways, even though I'm also very strongly sympathetic to libertarianism. So, but for at least international politics is like that, um, international relations, the nation state is a very useful tool in a lot of ways. So we, we, we the U.S. is willing, again, to um, destabilize the nation state and overthrow its rulers and it's turning out super well for them. But for me, like just even the the going back to the the quick narration of who the good guys are and who the bad guys are, um <clears throat> is a very I think it's a very American kind of um historical uh myth that they've developed um from their founding fathers to today, um, well, reality is a lot more complicated. And this is where I love the historians like um, Morgan McMillan has a book, the, um, I, I want to say it's called The Uses and Abuses of History. But it's basically like, you know, people, people like to cherry pick um, history for their own particular ends. And of course, like, you know, a more objective or um, even sympathetic reading of certain situ- um, certain situations in history would really change your opinion on things. And um, we today, to bring this back to the use of technology, I think that um, technology sometimes has the um uh it really um gives us short sightedness and this this is obviously like a well, especially in the era of twitter right when you know yeah. you're i i've lamented this before on the podcast is the fact that you know it's really hard to have any kind of meaningful discourse in 140 character chunks, right? Um, And, you know, I think a lot of the technology that we use now to communicate, to have discourse, really, I mean, Facebook doesn't impose a character limit, but even on Facebook, brevity seems to be the key, right? And sure, it might be the soul of wit, but for (coughs) the... For the deeper uh, truths that we hope to expose through, you know, philosophy and uh, other such discussions, it's really inadequate, but it's where the technology has kind of driven us to. And so, yeah, a lot of deeper thought um, has tended to be replaced by essentially, you know, the the meme, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's, um, the myths we create, um, I don't want to say rule our lives, because I I think that's more of a, it's too cute of a a saying, but the myths we create control a large portion of our lives and our, our political culture and stuff like that. And every, like, every country does it, whatever, like every, like, you know, 
Um, you see the 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 attempt to uh, rehabilitate Stalin in Putin's Russia right now and stuff like that. <laughs> and, and I'm just like, I don't understand it. But again, Timothy Snyder has a very interesting because he he's um I think he's a, a Yale or Princeton or whatever. But he can apparently he can read and understand ten or eleven languages. And his um read like really kind of smaller like some like more obscure languages so that when he's done he did his original research on world war ii and stuff like that and the holocaust he was able to go in the archives of these smaller nations that weren't really accessible to the average english reader and stuff like that or even french reader or german reader so that um he brought out a lot of specific information that was really original um, for the greater community, um, but he he was he he. Um, there's a couple of lectures in YouTube I've listened to him, um, particularly about the issues of the Ukraine right now, um, and he's saying that like the for I think North Americans in particular, World War Two was this almost like a moralized like it's a moral event. Where we were the good guys, we were the crusaders coming in to rescue the against the evil Nazis, which you know that kind of uh, the evilness of the Nazis, I'm not disputing whatsoever. But also, we have the evilness of the Soviets, and but for for or even of our own. I mean, you know, oh, Hamburg was firebombed. <laughs> yeah, no, no, and and, and that's like, and that's like I, I'm, and then of course Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Like, but we're still considered the good guys, and there's a certain romantic romanticism towards um, the tough guy, the strong man. We got that in Trump. He talks tough, and he's going to like you know bring America, make America great again, and blah blah blah. And you get the strong man in Russia and Putin, and he's very, from my understanding, he's still very popular. Like, <coughs> and. Uh, so there is a romantic kind of um, figure of the of the 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 leader and the dictators to that, and um, you know obviously there's uh, historical issues about um, that from the 30s that probably a lot of lessons to be learned from there. But for um, particularly for like the Russians, it's not really like a it doesn't have that same. They don't really moralize it like the Americans do. The World War Two, it's a very so it's not insane. It's a very they have a very postmodern kind of um, interpretation of the Second World War, where it's it's considered more like a a great national triumph rather than necessarily like um, uh, a fight against evil. For them, it was almost more of an existential thing, right? Because you know. Hitler it's was a, trying to march through them. So Yeah. But I mean, like again, like um and I think this is sort of acknowledged maybe among the Russian intellectual intellectuals, but um we're looking at the um the 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 number of casualties in the Eastern Front. Uh will I've heard numbers anywhere ranging from about one third to sixty percent, yeah, it was de- huge. No, were deliberately caused by Stalinist policies. 
So True. like, um, uh, so I mean, I think uh, Timothy Snyder is on the lower end of that, and I've uh, John Moser, I think, is on the um, upper end on, on the upper end, about like something like sixty percent. But either way, like we're, we're talking about eight to ten million civilian casualties, I believe, um, on the Eastern Front, some of like that. So we're looking at three to six million were deliberately caused by the Soviet policy, and it, and it's not like. Um, it was unintended consequences. It's that it was very much intended to control and divide uh, particular regions that the Soviets were going into, so it could be after the war, it could be controlled better. So I mean, yeah. um, you know, you you see, you look at uh, something like um, I've heard that something like two hundred thousand Polish uh, elites were killed by uh, the Nazis and the Soviets um, because they didn't want to have um, people who were able to organize and, uh, you know, be able to lead a post-war Polish state. So, I mean, this is like, you know, between 1939 and 41, that's what uh, the 200,000, like, and something like 20,000, like, Polish military officers were executed as well. In the first two years as well, and then of course, like from like forty two to forty three to forty five, like that's when the Holocaust really ramped up, and that's when the violence really ramped up. You have like in uh, the last eighteen months of World War Two, seventy percent of the German military casualties occurred. You have three and a half yeah. years, and then and then you have you know a year and a half, and it's that's where like the vast majority of the casualties occurred. So I mean. It's a <coughs> utterly fascinating respond, um, study in how people respond to the same events, or like how peoples rather than people um, respond to the, basically the same events and how they perceive the events as being very different. And so we can we can transfer that to uh, you know even like uh, September 11th where the Americans. Uh, viewed as natural tragedy and stuff like that, and it was a horrific event, stuff like that. but it completely, completely changed the Bush presidency. It did. Well, before he was almost like a not necessarily non interventionist, but he was all about compassionate conservatism, um, sort of like a, a fairly strong democratic, um, not necessarily democratic socialism, but um, a fairly strong, um, vigorous role for the state. for greater social support and then September 11th happened and it really changed the foreign policy of Bush and and Americans basically supported um, for the vast majority like the vast majority supported going into at least Afghanistan and then you know that's gone over well and then and then Iraq, which is which is even worse, and and the the, the even like you know, the, the way they dismantled the Iraqi state, um, is really fascinating because it, uh, a lot of ways it's uh, analogy of how the Polish, and the Ukrainian, states um, 
the mostly Polish state, was dismantled in um, the beginning of World War II. Um, and it caught, and, and Timothy Snyder argues that basically the dismantling of the states and how it was done or whatever, it, those were the areas where the Holocaust was the worst. Because he said that, he said something like about 25 to 30% of the victims of the Holocaust were actually only exterminated in the camps. The rest were exterminated outside the camps. Mm. Well, and I mean, there's an analog there too, right? Because it's been in the collapse of the Iraqi state and in sort of the uh, the power vacuum that's been created in the region. And likewise, from, you know, the destabilization of the Assad regime, that has really, that's where ISIS has flourished, is in yeah. those places that have really kind of be- been left exposed by these other regimes uh, being undermined. So, yeah. anyways... This has been an absolutely fascinating discussion that has ranged over a ton of topics, yeah. but I do need to bring it to an end, unfortunately. <coughs> so, um, yeah. And I have absolutely no idea what note to end on. I did want to mention one thing, though, because, you know, you made the comment again. I liked that, that comment you made uh, some time ago about the CEO who was really repulsed by the violence uh, on some of the Sega CD games. And, you know, that got me thinking that there's a bit of an analog to Ultima there. Because, I mean, the first three Ultima games are basically just hack-and-slash type RPGs. There's a story, there's a bit of a story, but it's, you know, fundamentally, kill a bunch of monsters, level up, go kill the big bad, done. And what was interesting is that uh, Richard Garriott got a lot of uh, hate mail and a lot of concerned mail over that, you know, a lot of parents who were very concerned, or at least so the popular story goes, how much mail he actually received, I'm not sure. But certainly the popular story is that he got a lot of mail about this, um, you know, uh, from concerned parents, from uh, religious people, just really worried about the level of violence in the games and some of the things that were being depicted in them. And, you know, to his mind, he didn't necessarily get it. Uh, you know, it's like, well, where are people really seeing this? But ultimately, all of this feedback was what planted the seed for Ultima 4 and the creation of uh, really what came to define the Ultima series. Because in Ultima 4, and it's not that you don't kill a lot of monsters in Ultima 4, it's a hugely grindy game. It really is. Uh, especially because you have to be at max level in order to pass. So, I mean, you have to go through scores of monsters. But there's no big bad in the game. There's you. You know, you're your own enemy in the game. And the whole point of Ultima Four is not to even defeat an existential threat to the kingdom of Britannia. You know, you're not there to save a princess or uh, overthrow a demon or anything like that. You're there to become the embodiment of the eight virtues, this system of ethical principles that the king of the land, Lord British, um, i.e. the in-game persona of Richard Garriott, is attempting to um, bring to this land that he is now attempting to unify under his rule. And so, you know, you 
um, to pass Ultima Four, you have to <coughs> completely exemplify the eight virtues, and uh, and you know level up and go through the yeah. last dungeon to recover the Codex of Ultimate Wisdom. But whatever, the point is it kind of as a result of you know the feedback to uh regarding the violence and depictions of the first games right or wrong whether the these people that were writing those letters had the correct impression of them or not led to the creation of the game really that is the is at the root of you know the modern morality driven storytelling that you were talking about uh previously you know Every Bioware game that throws a moral choice at you, and the doctors talked about this. Uh, you know, they were huge uh, fans of Ultima 4. They talked about it all the time. And every Bioware game that throws moral decision making at you as part of its gameplay mechanics owes a huge debt to Ultima 4 because that was really the game that put down the first template for that kind of RPG. And I mean, the later Ultima games went on to explore this. You're right in that, generally speaking, the games do push you towards the the good side, the Paragon side. I mean, in Ultima 4, if you're not essentially a Paragon in each of the eight virtues, <coughs> you can't pass. In Ultima 5, if you do unvirtuous things, your karma takes a hit, you can't pass. Same in Ultima 6. By Ultima 7, though, it started to give you a little bit more room to be gray. Um, Ultima 8 was very explicitly an exploration of, you know, essentially forcing the player to do uh, some pretty dark stuff. And then Ultima 9 kind of came back to more the, uh, the, the light side again. But at any rate... Excuse me. No worries. At any rate, yeah... Um, in terms of, you know, that kind of gameplay emerging at all, it really did start with Ultima 4, which, at least in some way, came about because people were repulsed by the, you know, concept of just a hack-and-slash RPG that had no deeper philosophical significance to it. So, it's, um... And here we are today. So... At any rate, um, thank you, good sir. This has been a very enlightening talk. I've enjoyed it greatly. Yes, survive. And survive. So, well, anyways, I have to uh, take care of a couple of more things before my wife gets home. So, I bid you good night, sir. Thank you again. This has been wonderful. Thanks for having me. Pleasure is totally mine. All right, and that is a wrap. So... Once again, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this discussion. Um, please send any feedback to ultimacodex at gmail.com. You can also flame me at that address if you're so inclined. And until next time, be virtuous. <laughs> <laughs>